I remember hearing people say, we need to drop our resistance. And I was like, <laughs> resistance is so key and core to how I perceive the world. How do we both resist and not resist at the same time? This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersection of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and each week we're bringing you a conversation with an inspiring movement leader and an accompanying practice that via audio you can do on your own practice at home by yourself or to share with your group that you work with. I want to ask you a quick favor. So at the time of this recording, we are one week old as a podcast. Um, We've been around for seven full days and we already have 38 ratings and reviews on iTunes, which is really exciting. So during the first 60 days of a new podcast, iTunes is trying to figure out if we have any traction. And it will make a significant difference for people being able to find this resource in the future, for it to come up in search results, and for it to be accessible if we can get as many people to subscribe, rate, and review this month as possible. So I ask you, please get out your phone now and go to the page that shows all the episodes in Healing Justice Podcast. And you'll scroll all the way down to the bottom and click a high star rating and also give us a nice positive review in the comments and make sure that you also click subscribe up at the top so that you don't miss it when new episodes come out thank you so much for joining us in our sustainability so this week we're talking with katie lonk co-director of buddhist peace fellowship about the spiritual aspiration of non-striving and how it relates to our necessary striving to create a more just world. Katie talks about different strategies for social change and shares stories of how Buddhist practitioners have used the values of their practice to mobilize for direct action. I really especially love Katie's confrontational stories. So Katie has served as a co-director of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship since 2012, and their movement education merges many streams, including healers, historians, international perspectives, and many different communities and traditions of resistance. In recent years, Katie's social justice journey has included helping to win a million-dollar lawsuit against a police department, fighting wage theft, assisting climbers in physically blockading a shell oil ship to increase the cost of arctic drilling y'all remember that sending care packages in feminist solidarity and continuously asking how to lead a life of service that can lovingly overturn the status quo so in their own words katie says that after a childhood of arrogant atheism She was fortunate to get over herself enough to begin investigating Buddhist practice and to start learning how to be free from suffering. She has now studied and practiced for nearly 10 years in a Theravada Vipassana insight lineage. You can learn more about Katie's history, her movement education, and honoring of the community she's learned from, and the lineage of her Buddhist practice in the show notes. Glad you're here with us. 
So welcome, Katie. I'm so glad that you made it over to my house. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Kate. It is lovely here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's super cool that we're getting to meet actually in person for the first time, but I feel like I've known you for over a year. Wow. Maybe more. That's, yeah, that's true. Uh Right. And we've talked and and connected, but in person for the first time. You're so glowing and radiant in person, as well as online, (laughs) I felt like. Thank (laughs) you. Deja vu. I noticed this thing recently that like people who I've met kind of through webinars or video calls, whenever I then meet them in person, I feel like their head is smaller than I thought it was. <laughs> and you have like a very normal sized, beautiful head. But like it happened to me when I went to liberation school too. We had a team that had collaborated virtually forever. And I think like we sit right up against the camera. And so I imagined that everyone was like much larger. And then in real life, they were similar size to me. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, here our, we are. Our avatar relationships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm super excited to talk to you because you are just someone who I look up to from afar in terms of your integration of spiritual practice and your real ability to articulate complexity and um, also be really deeply committed to justice issues and the many, many, many layers at which we need to um, uncover and unravel and rebuild and remember and um, all of those things. And so I really appreciate sort of like the public dialogue that you hold Mm -hmm. both on social media and through your work at BPF. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm excited to just like learn more about you and some of the things you've been thinking about lately And would love to, if you're down to talk about it, just start with a little bit of your own journey of how did you come to this intersection of Buddhist peace fellowship, your own Mm. spirituality, and organizing for social justice. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Oh, that's really kind of you. Um, And is aggravating maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome Mm. (laughs) um, because... I think I, I'm just someone who has a lot of insatiable curiosity and questions and um, fury about structural oppression, uh, some intergenerational connection with that. My dad's side of the family um, came to the U.S. via the Middle Passage um, at some level. They got originally into uh, the Dutch West Indies and then came... To the, via the Caribbean to the United States. And uh, my mom's side of the family came to the U.S. Uh, in 1949 after the Holocaust in mm. uh, Europe. And so in some way, I, I feel like with this double legacy of trauma and oppression, it is no surprise that I have always had a lot of uh, a lot of commitment and urgency around injustice and justice and these kinds of questions. But then the question of how that actually plays out in practice is obviously very complicated and mm. hard to achieve. And so I um, I grew up, I would say, as an arrogant atheist. Mm. I was like not about religion in any way, um, which is also because my mom was actually a lawyer for Planned Parenthood. She was the head lawyer for Planned Parenthood of oh, California. Wow. Uh, and so she was constantly battling um, basically Catholic lobbyists who were trying to impose uh, restrictions on re- reproductive rights access and, and trying to impose parental notification and consent 
requirements for young folks seeking abortion services. And um, that combined with just sort of the ambient Christian fundamentalism and homophobia, patriarchy, misogyny, kind of poisoned me against religion Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. from a a pretty young age. Um, And fast forward uh, a while of sort of being involved in social justice and activist work and feeling that there were some kind of unanswerable moral questions that were arising through the activist work and and some uh, some ungrounding really of like mm-hmm. where what is my actual anchor here what, what is wisdom what does that have anything to do with seeking justice and mm-hmm. ending oppression uh, so I, I kind of had to rebalance and recalibrate myself at a, at a certain point um, after graduating from Harvard in 2008. Uh, if you don't mind, I can share a little bit about, there's kind of like an ar- ironic story around that. So hmm. Harvard has this gate, this famous gate, on one side of which says, enter to grow in wisdom. And the other side says, depart to better serve thy country and mankind or something like that. And so even from, you know, from students who ostensibly cared about social justice or progressive issues, black students, you know, students who are coming from poverty or working class backgrounds, uh, there was still such a overall push and literally kind of this pipeline from graduates from the college at that time toward Wall Street and Morgan Stanley mm. and Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. And the idea was like, I'm going to get powerful or influential, and then I'm going to give back to community. Uh But we all know what happened with that. It's like, then there was this explosion and one of the largest mass thefts of wealth from Black community ever in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so it really, it really made me question kind of graduating from that scene at that time, what, we must be missing something around wisdom, if this is what serving mankind is looking like coming out of this institution. Um, So, so for me, wrestling with those contradictions Mm -hmm. and, and in some ways feeling responsible to a legacy, particularly on my dad's side of the family with anti-black racism of achievement and success and working twice as hard to show that he was half as good as his peers. You know, he was, born in 1940. And, uh, and so for him, it was very, very meaningful that I went to Harvard, you Mm -hmm. know, it was kind of this apex, right? But then what does it mean to actually experience these contradictions within the institution and to question the very basis of a kind of liberal ascendancy Mm. into, into the power of the empire, into the power of the United States or of capital um and so I, th- that's when i kind of broke down was like well <laughs> i could probably use some wisdom <laughs> uh, <laughs> some actual some some other forms of wisdom to to balance out this yeah kind of secular approach to changing the world yeah and that's when you were introduced to buddhism yeah yeah i was working at a bookstore actually and 
picked up some books about Buddhism. Luckily, one of them advised against getting caught at that phase of just kind of philosophical infatuation uh-huh. with the concepts. And it was like, try to go practice. You should just try. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So I checked out a few different, you know, a Zen center and a Shambhala center and other kinds and found a really good fit um, at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And uh yeah, then there was then there was another kind of practice of translating in reverse because it was a very white, like culturally white and demographically white space for the most part. And some of the assumptions and language, I remember hearing people say, we need to drop our resistance. And I was like, <laughs> mm. resistance is so key and core to how I perceive the world and a kind of fundamentally good thing. So mm-hmm. I was like, what do they mean? What is this? How do we both resist and not resist at the same time? Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I'm curious about that because something you said earlier that really stuck with me is this idea of being involved in social justice work and activism and having a question about like, is wisdom part of this in some way? Mm-hmm. And do you remember any key moments or key questions that, sat with you then or maybe even still sit with you now about that like attempt to piece together Mm. action now and wisdom Mm. or resistance and not resistance Mm. like what are the Mm. what are the places where that feels uh harder to reconcile sure sure well I think on the action side I I just noticed that every we all were becoming either there would be a ton of burnout kind of a, a baseline burnout and um, urgency and folks enacting trauma onto each other doing the work, right? Um, and sometimes, I mean, in some cases, I think people who have directly experienced severe trauma are in a really good position with their own healing to be able to support others going through a similar thing. Um, and... I was just wanting, I remember just a sense of relief just to be able to sit still for a little while. Hmm. And I know that's not how everybody's body experiences it. Sometimes it can actually be very scary to try to sit still. But for me and for my body, I experienced this intense joy and just letting my shoulders drop and just being quiet for 45 minutes was a total revelation for me. I was just always... Always go, 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 always in my head, really cerebral, you know, and um, it was like maybe diving underwater for the first time or some other like very different mode of being. And so, so back then it was, it was incredibly novel, I guess is the way to summarize that. But I also had a lot of skepticism around um, kind of what some folks have called spiritual bypass or Mm -hmm. the ways that we can, it seemed to me that spiritual practitioners or communities kind of like let themselves off the hook with the easiest, like most fluffy (laughs) types of uh, charity or goodwill or things that just kind of superficially addressed huge oppression and injustice and exploitation, but didn't actually get to the root causes of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so luckily I, you know, I think wisdom from the people that I have 
perceived and who I've met who are, you know, really trying to combine action and wisdom in a way that I think that you are and other folks on this show, it's wisdom also includes honesty and being Mm. able to be honest with ourselves about what's the impact that our actions are making on the world. And um, within Buddhism, it's been a huge support to have a a really um, robust teaching that is also about how do we live a life in an ethical way. Mm. And so it's not just about kind of a spiritual calisthenics or like improving focus or decreasing stress or something like that. There's also a much deeper legacy and lineage around uh, reducing suffering in oneself and in the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my question about that is that I've heard you refer to this concept of Mm non-striving and that that's a word that also comes from the spiritual background I was raised in, which is evangelical Christian. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot of talk about striving in, uh, like the charismatic church and, and letting go into faith, right. Mm -hmm. And that like faith Mm -hmm. and striving are sort of like at odds. And, and as I really came to activism inspired by reading the gospel Mm -hmm. and, um, and am totally built for striving in all the ways, (laughs) like the, all of like, how I'm socialized as a middle-class white woman is like all about striving. Mm. Um, I think my personality is built for it. And then definitely like coming into the social justice world, I'm like ready to strive with Mm. everybody. Right. Um, And some of that is like, we need that. Mm. Um, But the sort of non-striving concept has had been like a a relieffal invitation for me in that context. And it's not a word I've thought about for maybe 10 years. Mm. And so I would love to hear a little bit about like, what does that mean in a Buddhist context? Mm. And how does it relate to the work we are called to do and also the the being that we're called to do? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I want to just take a moment to contextualize any conversation about Buddhism. So, you know, I'm not ordained in any way. I'm not some kind of, you know, Buddhologist or expert or anything like that. And I wasn't Buddhologist is a word? I I believe it is. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wasn't raised in a family that practiced Buddhism, right? Um, But I always feel like conversations about it exist within a context of Orientalism and white supremacy within the United States, which tends to cast... Asian, again, like a very weird construct of an entire, you know, many different peoples, but Asian practices as more passive or peaceful or, Mm. you know, there's all kinds of weird stereotypes about it. So um, non-striving, I think, for me, has meant I've been influenced by some of – Suzuki Roshi had the famous line to his students of – you're perfect just as you are, and you could use a little improvement. <laughs> uh-huh. So I think one one strength of Buddhism, once we get past kind of the superficial casting of it in a in a U.S. context, is an ability to be with paradox in that way. So how do we do both striving and non-striving? And very serious Buddhists, to my understanding, you know, they're not, folks aren't just like sitting around (laughs) silently and passively forever. Mm -hmm. Like people are 
actually working very diligently. And part of that work is to try to purify the mind of the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, and also there's work that's physically about keeping one alive, whether that's going on an alms round or with lay people, you know, actually working the land or supporting a temple and this kind of thing. So first of all, just want to, you know, bust up any, um, some of the misconceptions I think that I was raised with, with a, with a white supremacist racist mentality in the U S of non-striving being this like serene, easy, mm. floaty thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, non-striving for me, I think is also about love, self-love and beginning to heal from some of the oppressive ideologies that have been fed to us that we are not enough mm. just as we are. So like I said, in my dad's, you know, short case, he, he was even a bigger striver than I am. You know, he mm. was like top of his class and felt that he had to represent all black people in his performance, right? And that's something that a lot of um, folks of marginalized communities have to deal with. Um, for my mom's side, my opa, my grandfather, literally only survived multiple concentration camps like Auschwitz, Dachau, Buchenwald because he was able to work, because mm -hmm. he was a, an auto mechanic and mm -hmm. his skills were useful. So there's some kind of striving that is necessary for survival. But in a sacred sense, you know, as we're opposing white supremacist, heteropatriarchal, cis-heteropatriarchal, racist capitalism, right? Like that says that we need to produce as workers in order to be valuable to the system or that we need to conform to certain standards of beauty in order to be valuable? What does it mean to just refuse and to non-strive and to say, actually, as a mm. part of creation, sacredness is already here, but a nature is already here. We don't have to invent it or, mm. you know, create it. Mm. Um, so I think to me, that's actually like very, it can be a very inspiring connection to, uh, anti-capitalist organizing is like the sacredness of non-striving. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. It makes me think about um, something that's been on my mind a lot the past week is just trying as much as I can to retain like a longer view of time mm -hmm. and understanding with compassion the fact that all of us who are on this planet right now have inherited a very, very painful unequal, violent, uh, system within which we exist. And we will also be gone quite soon. <laughs> right. Um, and many aspects of that system will definitely outlive us. Um, what has taken thousands of years and in the U S a super intense hundreds of years to transpire Will, what we know about healing is that it will not be undone mm. like in the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. It will be a long work. Um, and there's a certain kind of, I don't know, it feels for me related to the striving, non-striving like this, uh, both 
the kindness to ourselves to remember that, that we are like, we are here called to show up to do the work that we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, the healing work, the physical work of, of making external change, all of that with the time we have and with the, the, the kind of bodily resource that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the non-striving of just acknowledging that we're, we're channels for that work to happen for a short period of time, but that mm-hmm. we did not, we did, did not begin, nor will we conclude Mm. Um, the human story. And I think for me, like just trying to lean back into that, maybe especially as a young person in this work, Mm. um, gets me to a better place where I can take action from a a really committed place of choice. Like I think it almost strengthens my resolve in many ways Mm. because, um, because I'm moving from a place of inspiration and commitment instead of moving from a place of like inflated responsibility Mm. or overwhelm or, Mm. uh, mania. Right. Mm. Um, and a little bit of what you're sharing about like resistance and non, uh, non-resistance also makes me think about the framework that you've developed. I know along with others at Buddhist peace fellowship, Mm. um, and, I'm wondering if I'm getting the words in the right order anymore, but is it is it build first? Usually it's block first. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that might just be my personal preference because I love to block. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I might be slanting myself toward build. But uh, the build, block, and be framework. So I'm wondering if there's anything from sort of thinking as about the dance of like the striving, the non-striving, mm-hmm. like what are the different elements of the ways that we're called to show up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm, I already feel, I already feel in my body a a sort of weightier slowness thanks to what you just shared. So I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, the block build B framework, um, came out of some of our experiences organizing and seeing how, uh, we can get imbalanced in one of those directions sometimes so within buddhist peace fellowship and with some of the local organizing that i was doing so like i said i love to block i just love just being (laughs) (laughs) like you know that that militancy that's so strong that it can be soft that you know you don't even have to say a word because your your body is in the right place or the non-cooperation is in the right place to just like completely throw a wrench in (laughs) the normal (laughs) operation of the status quo um so yeah blockades you know refusals um kind of disruptions and trying to tear down a system is is sort of in the block realm and then we have you know our our comrades who love to build and who want to build the inspiring vehicles that are going to bring us to the next phase that we need to go you know whether that's a solidarity economy or time banking or um, permaculture and decolonization and indigenous sovereignty and like all kinds of building projects that are really amazing and get people inspired to, Mm -hmm. to do the many lifetimes long work of healing and, and liberation. And then the B side of things, um, you know, I, I live in Oakland. I've been in Oakland since, 2011 and uh just hearing from especially movement elders and uh, folks who were in the black panthers during its heyday about how um 
you know, despite all of its many incredible accomplishments and gains, there was not a lot of room for the bee or for the um, mm-hmm. spiritual work, spiritual development, alignment. And for me, I, the work of Franz Fanon or Grace Lee Boggs or other revolutionaries who discuss revolution as a process of evolution, of human evolution into a different kind of human being, are, are um, you know, they point to the necessity of a spiritual practice to ground us. Mm. And so if we spend all of our lives blocking, you know, we're, we're going to like be pretty upset all the time. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we won't have the balance of something positive to build, nor will we have some, some ability to just be with the pain and the suffering that is, you know, we might just try to shove it away as quickly as possible. Right. Mm-hmm. And as a strategy of avoidance, um, and if we're only just, you know, building, then we'll be vulnerable to state repression, to, you know, various ways that what has been built has been sabotaged or knocked down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can maybe feed into, even in the nonprofit world, right, as we see, like, the kind of capitalist mentality of always having to grow and get bigger and do more and more and more and more. So yeah. I think the bees is, is, a, is a beautiful... Um, a necessary deep wisdom element. It's just that deep wisdom well that can maybe support the two. There was something so, I mean, I refer to the movement ecology kind of module that we do in Momentum as as both a a learning strategy moment for me, but also really a spiritual revelation Mm. of just incorporating the fact that yes like it's not there's not a hierarchy of choosing different methodologies of change mm. but that we we need all the different strategies working together and that mm. the, the concept of movement ecology is like the better that we can coordinate that and celebrate that and mm. let people have their role and their theory of change in the ecosystem then the more effective that will be and so there were three different uh, sort of categories that we were using in the movement ecology framework. And so one of them is building alternatives. Mm. So like co-ops and building the world we need now, the housing collective that we're sitting in right now, mm-hmm. the hoop house here. Um, there's one about dominant institutional change, which is like the organizing I was raised in and is closer to the block mm-hmm. mentality and includes things that are both outside game, like the blocking, but also inside game, like running candidates mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, taking things over from participating in them too, you know, having people who can uh, file lawsuits that, you know, defend our civil liberties and all of that work. Mm. It can happen both on the inside and outside, but I was really working with the dominant institutions that exist. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was personal transformation. Mm. And it's interesting kind of dealing with the personal transformation one because even though I come from mostly a background of dominant institutional change, I sat with the personal transformation folks kind of in this season Mm. and I'm finding myself playing that role more now. Um... But also seeing that just like as a layer in everything that's happening, Mm. not that – because I think there can be a slipperiness around like commitment to personal transformation as an element of the other things that we're doing 
or saying personal transformation is my theory of change. Right. <laughs> That's like be the change. Right. Like if I get myself right and if everyone else just gets their mm. self right, then we're going to be good. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not sure that like, I'm not sure how we draw this mm. the right way to convey that that theory of change exists. And there's also a distinct thing that's different around like acknowledging the ecology and saying, I don't believe this is the whole thing, mm. Mm. but I'm also going to play a role in this area because it's needed and it's something I can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, But I wanted to just mention that there was a moment in the room where we were sort of grappling with the different terminology and of course, you know... Not everybody referred to themselves in these ways, like alternatives wasn't necessarily calling themselves alternatives. And we also all felt like, you know, there's elements of the work we're doing that touch each of these things. Right, right. right. Um, but our mutual friend Kazu Haga from East Point Peace Academy um, sort of raised his hand at one point and just shared, you know, there's a framework that I learned that is similar to this. And shared about block, build, and be with block, you know, referring to dominant institutional change, um, build, referring to alternatives, and then be, referring to personal Mm -hmm. transformation. Mm -hmm. And that everybody in the room was just sort of like, oh, yeah, like that's way easier. (laughs) (laughs) Like all of of this that we're sort of building terminology around is also just so uh, intuitive. (laughs) And that in some ways it's like, for me, I felt that when I came into organizing, I was trained out of a lot of the natural mm. knowing mm. that I have. And that now, mm. like when I have these moments around, oh, movement ecology, it's like, well, mm. yeah, of course, there's tons of ways that change happens. Like mm. at what point did I get to a place where I couldn't remember that? Right, right, right. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, that was kind of a fun moment. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. And it, it – um, it makes me think too that there are kind of how there can be coping mechanisms that serve us for a while, but then no longer serve us after a time. I do wonder if there were uh, material and political conditions that made certain folks really want to stake out territory and say, this is this and that is that, and we shouldn't just mix it all up and say, well, one is mm. just as good as the other. Because, yeah, I mean, what you said about people somehow coming to the conclusion that personal healing or change is inherently the revolution or is going to somehow radiate outwards and scale up until everybody is free, that's that I think that that's something we need to challenge. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not really comfortable with just letting that slide and being like, okay, yeah, whatever you think, it's part <laughs> of the movement ecology. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, at the same time, maybe we can loosen or relax or find a new shape after the kind of challenge against relativism takes hold, and then it's like, okay, yeah, we can still understand what modes we're in when we're in different modes. Um, but I think it's kind of funny, too, how I feel like in those different Black Build and B realms, people also, like, have uh, particular criticisms of the others. Like, the Block is just, like, all these other people are so naive, and mm. they're, like, just trying to build up their stuff, and, you know, then they're going to just, like, like the U.S. dropped a bomb on the move housing, you know, in Philadelphia, and it's just all going to get exploded, and people don't actually know the depth of terror of Mm. the ruling institutions. 
And the build people are like, Block, you are so negative. Like, mm-hmm. you, you're, you're wasting just, your time. And like, just build what we need. Yeah, the insurrectionary nature, you know, that's just never gonna work. And so, why don't we actually deal in reality? And B is just, you know, in, depending, but sometimes in Buddhist B, it's like, well, y'all are just in samsara. So, like, really, we just have to get free of the entire thing. Mm. And, um, yeah, I think that there's a – it's very exciting to me to see when people subvert those critical tendencies and become friends and mm. understand the power of each of those areas of, of strength. And and like you said, how each one can actually show up within the others too. They don't have to be separate, distinct. Yeah. Yeah. And that we might have within the work that we're doing different roles that suit people, or we might have elements of each in our own lives, or we might move through seasons right? Yes. of one to the other. Yes. Like I am sitting here playing the role of one of the B people right now, supporting folks that mm-hmm. are doing the block and build mm-hmm. because I've done 10 years of block and I yeah. need a different season yep. personally. Yep. <laughs> Rotate the crops. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yes. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. And that can be so, I find that so beautiful to just know when we need a pivot. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I've been doing, you know, a lot of B and I need to get back in, in there, you know, Mm -hmm. and, or I've been doing a lot of build and it's time to just let, you know, to go either back to block or back to B or Mm -hmm. yeah, switch it up. So we love them all, (laughs) but you might love block the most. (laughs) So I want to ask you a little bit more about block. Um, and one of the things that inspired me a lot, you know, when I was working with Citizen Well, um, we did a couple of really symbolic actions that uh, incorporated a very visible bee element into mm-hmm. direct action. Mm-hmm. And learning more about BPF and meeting you, I realized there's actually a really long tradition of doing that in Buddhist Peace Fellowship and certainly mm-hmm. other places too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to ask you if you have any, uh, any interesting stories of, of confrontation that also incorporated elements of spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in Buddhist Peace Fellowship, we, we were lucky enough to inherit this history of, for example, in the 80s, folks sitting zazen meditation on train tracks to try to block weapons shipments to central america whoa yeah and actually people sacrificed limbs and like it got really intense in those kinds of actions but they would go out day after day and hold meditation vigil on the on the tracks that were shipping these weapons and that to me just says so much about um how b and our spiritual practice doesn't have to be this kind of mm. high-floating, ungrounded. Like, people were researching how are these mm. instruments of destruction actually moving through the world physically. Yep. <laughs> and let's go interrupt it. Yep. Um, so I love I love moments like that. I've been lucky to participate in a few blockades that have been really acutely successful. Um, one year we did a meditation blockade out front of the Marriott Hotel in downtown Oakland to um, try to pressure Oakland to evict a national, international weapons expo and police militarization training that happens every year in the Bay. And 
it was it was wonderful for me because a I got to be silent the entire two hours, and sometimes I like yelling, but it, you know you're chanting the same thing over and over uh-huh. forever. Uh-huh. So what if you could just be effective in the blockade and not actually have to say anything? It's kind of a nice change. <laughs> um, and then there were. Um, monastics from the Nippon Zan Myohoji order drumming and chanting the entire time, which was also such a different type of chanting from mm. the kind that I'm used to and and really carried us through that entire time together as a community, which also brought together some of my political, you know, socialist revolutionary friends who are very much kind of wary of any spiritual trappings and then spiritual folks dharma folks meditators who don't consider themselves political really and everybody kind of got together on that action and i think it it, combining the spiritual and the political um can feel so correct in Mm. those moments and Mm. really life-giving yeah and then the last quick example i'll mention that Mm -hmm. i just always um love is that in thailand they actually had a campaign against deforestation to save these forests and one tactic they used it was to ordain trees by wrapping them in the cloth of the that the monks would wear oh wow it's really incredibly beautiful art and spiritual action that was part of a a years-long and successful campaign to stop deforestation so buddhist activism for the win yes (laughs) that's so cool i'm thinking too about um you know just the examples of of sitting meditation in the midst of action and noise and confrontation and um, the spiritual grounding and moral authority that that can lend both to like this, the, the external symbolism of the action, Mm. but also to like actually be grounding the collective energy of people who are there to block Mm -hmm. Um, and thinking about the ways that, you know, especially because I came back from Highlander Center last night, mm. thinking about the ways that like song and these kind of spiritual embodied interventions that we can do when we're moving in mass mm. um, around efforts to block where like uh, police are involved mm. and there's huge potential for confrontation and trigger and violence mm. and uh, for things to escalate really, really quickly. Mm. Um what are the ways in which we have tools to actually uh, ground and collect our own energy mm. when we resist together? Mm. And um, I love the idea of sitting. Song does it well. Mm. The drumming sounds like it would do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's part of the magic of even the mm. chanting too is like mm. what are the ways that we're collecting and unifying our energy when we're in those really stressful moments mm-hmm. of deep confrontation? Mm. And um, I think we need – just more of that glue all the time to, to fortify ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And even within that, the it's something that I'm wrestling with, to be honest, because the spectacle of that spiritual practice is so hyper-visible. Mm-hmm. And depending on the context, it can come across as a little bit condescending. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it, I have found it really, really useful to also take trainings from people who are running um, like people security, self-defense classes about literally physically with my body, how to 
you know, put up my hands open palmed to show that I'm trying to de-escalate a threat, but also as a technique for keeping my hands near my face so that if there's someone who's going to strike a blow at my face, I can deflect it. Hmm. You know, those very um, concrete techniques that aren't always, they don't read in the same way that a, you know, sitting meditation reads, but they can be equally peaceful, especially in this active peace mode, you know, peace not as passive, but peace is actively creating conditions for peace amidst, amidst conflict. Um, and honestly, I, I feel like I give, I give a lot of credit in, in the Bay, there's a group called um, Community Ready Corps that's led by this person named Terha, and he's teaching a lot of people with a deep commitment to nonviolent peaceful action about how to do nonviolent de-escalation using physical self-defense, um, unarmed, obviously. But to me, that that is a skill that only complements and enhances the, hmm. the unifying practices like you're talking about, the spiritual practices in the streets. Mm-hmm. So as we transition, I know that you're going to be offering us a practice that uh, folks can download by... Uh, looking at the next episode in the series and really looking forward to that. But before we do, just wanted to ask you, are there any little pieces of inspiration that you'd like to leave behind in terms of healers or teachers or frameworks or books or practices, just like what Mm -hmm. is feeding you right now as you work at this intersection of uh, action for social justice and spiritual practice? Mm. Well, it's been so wonderful to talk, and you give me lots of new ideas and food for thought, so thank you. And it reminds me of uh, a line from the Black lesbian feminist poet Audre Lorde, who said, there are no new truths, only new ways of making them felt. Mm. And I feel like... um, I'm so excited to listen to the other guests on the podcast and and to deepen into our healing justice work collectively because we're making felt in new ways with all of our different communities truths of the possibility of collective liberation, right? Truths of um, how to organize people power to topple systems of oppression. So mm. may we... Maybe I'll make them felt in exciting, beautiful new ways. Yes. May we make them felt. And I'm excited that you have completed being interviewed on a podcast before you've ever even listened to a podcast. <laughs> you go and call I'm me out. That this <laughs> Luddite wave. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You just heard a conversation between Kate Warning and Katie Lonk, co-director of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. You can download the corresponding non-striving meditation practice to try on some of this work for yourself by looking in the app or web browser wherever you're encountering this podcast and downloading the next episode. I encourage you to really take the time and space to do that meditation. It can be done sitting, standing, or laying down. Uh, But I encourage you to take that space for yourself and do that practice. It's a beautiful practice. You can keep in touch with Katie via their Instagram, which is at Katie Lonk, and the work of Buddhist Peace Fellowship at bpf.org. 
You can access the resources referenced in this conversation and sign up to stay in touch at healingjustice.org. Follow us on Instagram at Healing Justice and like us on Facebook, Healing Justice Podcast. This podcast is generously mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Cole Room. And the intro and closing music is gifted by Danny O'Brien. Our team is 100% volunteer, y'all. We are spending our own money to cover the tech costs and hosting costs every month. So if you are in a position to chip in, please do so and join us by contributing at patreon.com slash healing justice. And remember, even if you don't or can't chip in financially, one way that you can really support our sustainability in a significant way is to go into iTunes, go to the podcast page for Healing Justice, and subscribe, rate, and review to help us continue. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. Hear you next week.